0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all.
1: If anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, We know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge.
0: Uh, Hi everyone, my name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors with Campus Bible Study and it's really nice to see you. Um, You may be here for the first time at Campus Bible Study at the Bible Talks. Great to have you here. You even might possibly be at university for the first week of university for you. Um, If that's you, welcome to uni. It's great to have you here. Looking forward to growing with you while you're here over the next few years. Let's pray that God will help us understand this passage. We're not just covering chapter 8 that was just read for us. We're going to do chapters 8 and 9. So this Bible talk could be the best six hours of your life. Let's pray for God's help and let's get into it. Father God, thank you so much that we can come to uni and learn about all kinds of things. But particularly thank you that we can come and learn about you. Father, please teach us from this passage how we should respond to you. Teach us what Jesus has done for us and how we should model our lives on him we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 1948, quite a few years ago, it was three years after the end of World War II, and the world was still struggling to understand the atrocities that humans could commit against other humans. And at that point in 1948, the nations of the world united to kind of channel their outrage into something positive. And they produced this, The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it is a great statement that declares the value of each and every human being in the world and sets forth what have been declared universal rights of every human in the world. To be treated with equality, freedom, security, recognition before the law, and even things like the right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. And the rights that I've mentioned to you just there are just the start of this great charter of rights that that set forward these inalienable rights that they believe every human should possess, should be given. This, um, This charter was written to protect humans from things like exploitation, human trafficking, abuse, torture and tyranny. This great charter of rights was written to protect us from the harm that we humans inflict upon each other. This wonderful document was produced to help humans actually care about each other. We are now 75 years on from when that document was written. How do you think it's gone? How do you think it's gone? Do you think we humans are treating each other a considerably lot better than back then? Mm. Now, I don't want to be unfair to this brilliant document. I love that we have this declaration of human rights. But the situation in our world today, even with this brilliant charter of rights, does demonstrate the limitation of living by rights. People still manage to treat each other pretty badly, don't they? Although it is wonderful that every human being is entitled to these inalienable rights, these rights alone cannot produce a community where people love and care for each other. That, in a sense, is the limitation of rights. Rights can be somewhat helpful in restricting some bad behaviour, but rights can't ensure good behaviour, loving behaviour, kind behaviour from one human towards another. The gospel of Jesus Christ, on the other hand, it challenges us to not just uphold rights in the way that we treat each other. The gospel of Jesus Christ raises the bar upon rights and challenges us to live by more than just rights, to live by something even more powerful than rights. So you see, um, Jesus Christ has revolutionised life in our world much more than any universal declaration of human rights ever could. Jesus has introduced a way of treating others that is even more beneficial than anything a charter of rights could ever produce. So, today, in today's Bible talk, I am going to encourage you not just to live by your rights, but to live out an even more beneficial way as you relate to other humans. And because this more important way of living towards other humans is even better than rights, it may mean that you and I might even be willing to give up some of our rights occasionally, to sacrifice some of our rights in order to love other people and to treat other people better than this charter of rights could achieve. So are you ready for the challenge? Yep, let's do it. We're at point one, knowledge and love. And as Kitty said, we are jumping back into the book of 1 Corinthians this term. We looked at the first seven chapters in term one this year. Now we're looking at the last nine chapters of the book this term. And the first two words of our passage remind us about the structure of this section of Paul's letter. Can you see the first two words? Now concerning... Those two words mark a new section in this section of the book. Just flick back to chapter 7, verse 1 for a moment, and you'll see where this this, this kind of structure begins. Chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That now concerning is the structure that kind of structures Paul's argument through this section of the letter. The Apostle Paul is responding in this letter to questions that the Corinthians have asked him in a previous letter that they have sent to him. And uh, Paul responded to their first question in chapter 7 about marriage and sex and other things. Now he's moving on to their second question about food offered to idols. And the issue is, as you probably picked up as the passage was read, the issue is whether a Christian, someone who worships Jesus follows Jesus can that person eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol another another idol of some different religion can they eat that food without somehow participating in the idolatry that's the question now you might be thinking that is not exactly your issue in life you might be thinking it's not a current issue for anyone anymore think again Our brothers and sisters from Asian families often have to grapple with this issue. And the principle that this issue is built on will flow over into all kinds of other areas of your life. This section is not irrelevant to to your modern life. So let's get into it. Look at what Paul says in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Paul is writing people who know stuff. They know the drill. They know that there's only one true God. They know that idols are not real gods. So in a sense, they know that idolatry is just empty human worship. You probably have a a similar, very good theological understanding. You probably know the same kind of things. Paul expands on the issue in verses 4 to 6. Have a look. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no god but one for although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist now i don't know whether you noticed that there's some really beautiful clever theology going on here it's 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 wonderful See, the Apostle Paul does something very clever here because all these idol, I- I- idols around and all these different, you know, air eh, air eh tag uh, kind of gods, idols, that kind of thing. Um, the Apostle Paul responds and says, no, 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 monotheism is the only thing there is. And he takes us back to the Old Testament, to a classic quote about Old Testament monotheism. Have a look on the screen. This is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a classic statement of of Old Testament monotheism. But look at what Paul does to that as he goes on to describe this one true God in verse 6. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. See what he's done? Paul has moved from classic Old Testament monotheism to beautiful Christian monotheism. Beautiful theistic, uh, Trinitarian monotheism. There is only one God, absolutely. But that one true God has now revealed himself in the New Testament as Father, Son and Spirit. One God, make no mistake, one God in three persons. That is the truth about God. Now, it's great to know that, to know that beautiful truth about God and not to be deceived by false gods or idols or anything like that. But not everyone knows what you know. And your knowledge could, in fact, be dangerous to someone who doesn't know these things quite as well as you. The Bible's term for someone who doesn't know this stuff quite as well as you is to have a weak conscience You can see it in verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So how should you with your good knowledge live with other people who have weak consciences? That's the issue here, isn't it? Because you could stand on your rights and demand your freedom. I know the truth about God. I know that idols are nothing. They're just human inventions. So I can do what I want. I am completely free to eat whatever I want, whether it's been offered to a junky idol or not. I can eat it. It's, it's my right to do so. That is basically what verse 8 is saying, isn't it? Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do you could stand on your rights. You could stand on your good knowledge and your freedom and you could really damage the faith of someone who is not as clear on this issue as you. Let's keep reading verses nine and 10. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols. What might it look like today? Let's let's see if we can put this in a modern context. Um, Perhaps you go on a weekend trip down to the beautiful Royal National Park to the south of Sydney. Really nice place to go on a weekend. And because you're a bit of a foodie, you've read up on your foodie destinations down near the Royal National Park. And um, well, you want some of this beautiful food that's available down in Helensburg at the Hindu temple every weekend. You can go and enjoy this beautiful food. And because you know that there's only one true God and you know that any other worship is just human invention, you can happily tuck into this really nice food, this beautiful Indian food. But someone who knows you, a new Christian who has just started coming along to campus Bible study and learning about Jesus for the first time, is also at the temple because their family have worshipped there for years. They have been eating the food in that temple for years, but they've just come to put their trust in Jesus. And they feel like it would be idolatrous to keep eating that food that is so associated and offered to the idols that their family have foolishly worshipped for too long. They they think they shouldn't eat the food, but then they see you hoeing in to their delicious food. And they see you and they go, but, but they're a mature Christian. They, they know stuff. They've got good knowledge. It's obviously okay to do this idolatry thing in Christianity. And if they follow your example, you lead them well and truly into doing something that they believe to be idolatry. Can you see how it works? You are well within your rights to eat at the food at that temple. You can do it as a Christian. You're free to do it. You know that in Mark 7, Jesus declared all food clean. But if you freely act on your good knowledge, you could damage someone with less knowledge and a weak conscience. Verses 11 and 12. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Can you see that um, knowledge is not the problem? You don't want to respond to this by saying, I need to know less about God. That, That would be the wrong response. It is good to have a good knowledge of the truth about God. The problem is when that knowledge is used without love for other people. And that is why the Apostle Paul warned us about the danger of good knowledge way back in verses one to three. Come back there for a moment. We skipped over them early on. Verses one to three. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul says knowledge puffs up, But love builds up. Notice they are both about inflating something, right? But knowledge might just fill you up with your own self-importance and entitlement. Love, if you do what is loving for others, you have the power to build others up in Christ. Now, this kind of issue is not just restricted to eating food in temples. A friend of mine once raved about the movie Fight Club and he loaned me the DVD. He'd bought the DVD, loved it so much. He loaned me the DVD and my wife, Jenny, looked at it and she saw an R rating on the front of the DVD cover. What should Christians do with R rated films? Do you you watch them? Do you not watch them? Christians are probably free to watch R rated movies responsibly if they don't lead you into sin. But my wife had a weaker conscience about that. She considered that it might not be right for a Christian to watch an R-rated movie. I didn't feel like it was a big issue. I think I could have been okay to watch the movie, but that would not have been helpful for Jenny's Christian conscience. I decided to forego my right to watch the movie. So I still can't tell you what Fight Club is all about. I've got no idea. There are also a number of other issues, similar issues, where your knowledge might allow you to do something freely, but where you might choose to willingly not do it for the sake of loving others who may not yet share your good knowledge about the issue. So this is is about self-limiting your freedom for the sake of loving and building up others. You see, with these kinds of issues, you do generally have a legitimate right to do the thing that is not something that seems wrong in your eyes. But this passage is encouraging you to love others first and to limit your freedom rather than to stand on your rights and enjoy your freedom to the detriment of others. Limiting your freedom, how do you feel about that? Limiting your freedom for the sake of loving and serving others. It's a very gospel thing to do, isn't it? It's what Jesus did for you, didn't he? Have a look at Philippians 2 again. There's really interesting language going on in Philippians 2, verses 4 to 8. "'Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus.' who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Gospel tells us that Jesus Christ limited his own freedom in a a really big way. By becoming a human... And then by willingly sacrificing his life at the cross. Jesus has perfectly modelled this kind of self-sacrificial love that serves other people and builds up other people. Jesus has done exactly this for you and me. Jesus has shown us how good it is when someone doesn't just care about themselves and their own rights, but willingly gives up some of their own rights for the sake of building others. It's beautiful, loving behaviour. And the gospel shows us that is exactly what Christianity is all about. In a similar attitude of sacrificial love, the Apostle Paul speaks about what he would willingly give up for the sake of building others. It's there in the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Engineers are gasping around the room right now. Can you see the Apostle Paul's love for others in this statement? Now, you may not know this about me, but I was a vegan for two years after having a heart attack a few years ago. You may not know this. Why am I telling you this? Because I want to reinforce just how much of a sacrifice the Apostle Paul is willing to make here. I've made this sacrifice for two years and it is serious. This is a serious sacrifice that the Apostle Paul is willing to make if meat, eating meat could possibly damage someone else's salvation. He'll never eat it again, full vegan. Apostle Paul, there you go, for the sake of serving others. Can you see the priority that the Apostle Paul puts on the salvation of others? Now, this is not all hypothetical for the Apostle Paul. He speaks about what he might do if it became a problem for others. But as we move into chapter 9 paul shows us a real lived out example that he has already done this kind of behavior so we're at point two rights and freedom the apostle paul reminds us that he is an apostle and as an apostle he has rights have a look at it in verses 1 to 6 chapter 9 1 to 6 am i not free am i not an apostle have i not seen jesus our lord are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am an apostle, at least I am, t- I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's another name for Peter there. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Okay, we'll stop there and we'll have a think about this paul is asking all of these rhetorical questions because the answer is obvious it's absolutely clear yes paul is an apostle yes paul saw the risen lord jesus yes the christians in corinth are his workmanship the proof of his apostleship if you like because they themselves were brought to christ through his preaching of the gospel to them and the next step in the logic after all these yeses, is that Paul is an apostle. So therefore, he shares the same rights as the other apostles. What are these rights? Well, you can kind of get some of them from verses 4 and 5. The right to have your living arrangements provided for. The right to take a believing wife along on your apostolic missions. Now, Paul doesn't actually even have a wife, but he's got the right to take her along if he gets one, right? That's what he's saying. But as Paul expands on these rights of an apostle, he kind of moves into the rights of every gospel worker. Let's pick it up in verse 7. However, not on, uh, chapter 9, verse 7, sorry, not chapter 8, verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The examples are pretty straightforward, aren't they? If you're a soldier, the government pays you, they pays your, pay your expenses and your wages to go to war. If your job is to own a vineyard, you get to eat some of the grapes, it's pretty clear. If you're a shepherd of a flock of sheep or goats, you get to make lattes out of the milk. And if you work at McDonald's, you have the right to stick your mouth under the ice cream tap and every once in a while fill up. I'm, and, and I'm sure you do that, we all know you do it, and yes, it grosses everyone out. You get the picture? There are certain rights that come with every job. And Paul is saying very clearly that apostles and gospel workers have rights too. But Paul's, uh, Paul's authority about this does not just come from human examples like you at McDonald's. Have a look. Verses 8 to 12. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the ploughman should plough in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Okay, time for you to do some hard thinking. Well, I'm going to throw you a question. I want you to have a quick chat with the person next to you. The question is this. How does this obscure Old Testament law about oxen add to Paul's logic on this issue? You've got 30 seconds. Enjoy. Okay, let's do some thinking about oxen. This law about oxen, it's a legitimate Old Testament law. You can look it up in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. The idea is that if the ox was doing all the hard work for you, then you should at least let the ox eat some grain while it does all your hard work. That's the idea. Just like the ploughman and the thresher. They should be able to share in some of the crop. That's the logic. That's what's going on. Now, the Apostle Paul basically says this law was not written for oxen. And do you know how we can know that this law was not written for oxen? Oxen can't read. Now, that is, that is an old joke. Do you know how old that joke is? That joke is 500 years old, first made by Martin Luther in the 1500s. How good is that? And you, it still gets a laugh, even in modern day life. Isn't that wonderful? I thought it was quite good as well. I enjoyed it. Um, the, the logic of this, uh, this oxen law is from the lesser to the greater. If God cares even about oxen, being provided for while they work, then how much more does God care about apostles and gospel workers being provided for while they work? Paul gives us one more example. It's there in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, and 14. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's the same logic, isn't it? God commanded the Israelites who worked in the temple and offered the sacrifices in the temple, God commanded that they should be provided for by the rest of the Israelites, by every other Israelite outside the temple. And God has chosen the same practice for those whose job it is to be an apostle or a gospel worker even today. And this is why churches collect money from their congregations. So that one of their members can be freed up from having to go out to work nine to five every day so they can be freed up to serve the church. The church members support the living expenses of their gospel worker so that he or she can spend his working week pastoring God's people and working hard to teach them the Bible well. That is how God has set up the Christian community. And I just want to drill in on this for a moment with you, because I hope you play your part in this. Your church probably has a minister who has given up his other career in order to serve you and your fellow church members. I hope you see it as your Christian responsibility to provide for his living expenses so that he can fulfill his responsibility to pastor your church and to teach you well. And even if you are only on a very small student income, I hope you contribute some of that small income towards this important relationship that God has established in his community. He's designed it for sustaining the community so that the community gets well well taught, well pastored. The principle of you contributing something is even more important than how much that something is. So I really want you to get this principle. It's a really important part of, what, uh, of your life in, in your church. Now, if you'll allow me to apply, apply this to Campus Bible Study for a moment, the pastors who teach and care for you here at Campus Bible Study are in exactly the same situation. They are willing oxen, and uh, they, they actually love working and serving you but they have voluntarily given up their careers in commerce, occupational therapy, engineering, medicine, geography, speech pathology, science, teaching, and and all kinds of other things so that they can serve here with us on campus. Um, They've made that sacrifice so they can serve you and students like you with the gospel. And the principle that we're talking about here applies to gospel workers on campus just like it applies in your church. The gospel workers who work here need your support. Even if you can only help in a really small way, we need that small, regular help. Um, And I want to encourage you to take your responsibility in this area seriously. Particularly at the moment, Campus Bible Study is going through a pretty tough time financially as the cost of living hits everyone and a lot of our supporters. We need your help. So first thing I want you to do is pray. Would you pray that God would raise up 200 new regular financial partners? And it'd be great if you were also able to be the answer to your prayer, even with only just a small amount each week. By small amount, I'm saying, could you have one less coffee a week or one less bubble tea a week and support the oxen who are serving you with the gospel here at UNSW. Uh, If you'd like to do that, take that responsibility. There's a link on the outlines, or you can go to the CBS website, and that'd be really helpful. God has determined that gospel workers should live by the support of the Christians they serve. And the Apostle Paul would call that a right. He's gone out of his way to establish that it's a right. But as soon as he establishes that it's a right he then does something completely unexpected. After all the big argument, establishing his rights as an apostle and a gospel worker, he then turns and says, but I have not used those rights. The apostle Paul has willingly given up some of these rights. And what you and I should be asking is, what would possibly make him want to do that? Paul begins his answer halfway through verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. It's the same logic that we saw in chapter 8. There is something more important than rights. That something is the salvation of other people hearing the gospel and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying very clearly that people finding salvation in Jesus... Is more important than having the freedom to exercise all your rights and there's something really beautiful about that it gets even more amazing in verses 15 to 18 read it with me verses 15 to 18 but I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting for if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. All right, it's pretty complicated what's going on here. You get the general drift, but I want to drill in a little bit. So I've got another question I'd like you to talk about with the person next to you. Here's the question to help you understand this section. What do you think Paul's reward is? What is Paul's reward? Can you put it into words? Go for it. You've got 30 seconds. Okay, let's try and work this out together. Let's do this. Um, You probably know that the Apostle Paul was commanded by Jesus, When he was saved on the road to Damascus, he was commanded by Jesus to take the gospel to people all over the world. That was his life's mission from then on. So in a sense, he didn't have a choice to not do that. He had a command that he he had no choice. That was his life's work from that point onwards. So in a sense, when Paul preached the gospel, he was just fulfilling this God-given command. He wasn't doing anything beyond his job that he could boast about. So how could he go above and beyond? We often think a reward is something you get for doing something well. But I actually think in these verses, the reward is not about getting, it's about giving. If Paul does not claim his right to be supported financially as a gospel worker, he gets the reward of being able to offer the gospel free of charge the reward of being able to give the gospel away freely without any financial entanglement. And there again is the example of the gospel, because that's exactly what Jesus has done in the gospel. Jesus gives salvation free of charge. And the apostle Paul, well, his reward, his joy is to give the same gospel that gives salvation and to do it Free of charge. That helps us to see that there is a big difference between rights and love. We're at point three, our last point, rights and love, and we'll finish off in our last five minutes. The principle is again very clear you can lay down some of your rights in order to love other people, and that is a very gospel thing to do. Do you know, I've watched some of my friends do this as missionaries in different international cultures. My friends Mike and Katie have laid down their rights to regular electricity and reliable internet in order to live in Tanzania and teach local pastors how to understand and teach the gospel. Another friend of mine, Jo, she's laid down her right to dress however she wants, because she serves women in a Middle Eastern culture where women must wear veils whenever they are out in public. There's something really beautiful when Christians voluntarily lay down their rights in order to love others. And I want to encourage you to think about doing exactly that in your life. What would it look like for you to give up a right in order to love and serve someone else? The Apostle Paul gives us one more example of what it looks like in verses 19 to 23. Let's read. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, the word servant there, that's a polite way of translating the original Greek, which basically means slave. And in the first century Roman world, can you guess the type of person who had the least rights? Absolutely, it was the slave's. And Paul is saying that instead of standing on his rights and the freedoms that he has, he made himself a slave to others for the sake of loving them with the gospel. And slaves had to conform to the nature, to the culture of the house that bought them. You, you go into a Jewish house, you get bought into a Jewish house, you need to conform to the Jewish culture of that, that house. That was your job. Paul says that he willingly enslaved himself to that culture, to accepting that culture so that people from all those different cultures could hear the good news of Jesus. What culture would you be willing to adopt for the sake of sharing the gospel with others? It would be very purposeful service, wouldn't it? This is all about sacrificing willingly your own rights and your own freedoms for the sake of loving others who need the gospel. This is sacrificial service, and that is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. You you know that your generation sometimes gets a bad rap for being a bit entitled, right? You you know you get bagged out for being entitled. I don't think it's fair on you, but make sure it can never be said about you. Um, Please make sure that it doesn't describe your lifestyle if you've been changed by the gospel. And make, you sh- make sure you learn sacrifice from your Lord Jesus and keep practising in the service of others so that you grow more to be like your Lord Jesus every day. And you know, um, sometimes CBS students also get a bad rap for knowing a lot of good theology in their heads and for not applying it in love to serve others. And again, I don't think it's a fair rap, but I do hear it from time to time let's make sure it's never true. Let's make sure that it's never just head knowledge that's not applied in love to serve others. While you're here at university, don't just grow in knowledge. Make sure you use that knowledge in love to benefit the salvation of others. Let's pray. Father God, thanks for this really challenging passage that pushes us out of our comfort zone to consider how we might make sacrifices ourselves for the sake of loving and serving others, to build others up and to help others find salvation in Jesus. Please help us to understand how this might apply in our lives and the sacrifices that we might need to make. And we thank you so much that Jesus has modelled for us this kind of sacrificial love of others in the way he's loved us by dying for us at the cross. Father, please help us to live this out. In Jesus' name. Amen. And the sacrifices that we might need to make. And we thank you so much that Jesus has modelled for us this kind of sacrificial love of others in the way he's loved us by dying for us at the cross. Father, please help us to live this out. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.